Dear Father, we are thankful for your word. We're thankful for the Apostle Paul and the letter to the Roman church. Um, It is full of tremendous truth, uh, good news. It is the power of God for salvation to all who believe. Father, I pray that you would help us to not just understand Romans 8, um, but to believe it and for it to rewrite our hearts and our minds and our souls, our lives. Uh, Would it change us and give us the life and peace that the Spirit offers? I know that we all come here with um, difficult uh, situations and struggles and um, emotions. Father, we come here having experienced in some way or another this week death. Um, And it says that the spirit of life offers life and peace, and we want that. And so would you give that to us this morning? Would you help us remember that we have it in Jesus? And we pray that in Christ's name. Amen. Living in San Francisco, you meet all kinds of people with all kinds of jobs. It's one of my favorite things to ask people, what do you do? And and just to hear about their companies. And a couple weeks ago, I was talking with a dad friend at a dad hang uh, and asked him about his company. And he works for a company called Digital Realty, and they are basically a real estate company for data centers. And so they buy property around the world and build very specialized warehouses with like elevated floors and elaborate cooling systems, um, super fire protection and all that. Um, And then Facebook and Amazon and Microsoft can rent or lease these buildings from them and install all their servers. Uh, So you can always have access to your crazy political views. Like that is, that is what he does. He wants to make sure that you have it at all times. It is available to you. Uh, needless to say, his company is doing pretty well. The pandemic did not hurt him in any way. In a digital age, we sometimes forget that everything on the internet lives someplace. Like it exists somewhere in the physical world. Uh, Your entire email history, those thousands of emails, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of emails that you've never deleted, they're taking up physical space somewhere um, on the earth. Your Instagram photos uh, take up physical space. Your Candy Crush score from 2011 is taking up space somewhere. And that always sort of makes me feel uncomfortable that I'm being wasteful by keeping these things uh, that are somewhere. But the cloud is a metaphor. Like it's, there's not actually a cloud or this sort of invisible space. Like it's all physically located. And I find this to be a good illustration illustration for God's relationship to creation, but in reverse. So similar to how everything digital is sustained physically somewhere, the Bible teaches that everything created is sustained in the creator, Uh, that everything uh, invisible, everything visible, material, immaterial is held by God. Job 12.10 says, In God's hand is the life of every living thing and the breath of all mankind. Hebrews 1.3, speaking about Jesus, the Son of God, he says that he is the radiance of the glory of God and the exact imprint of his nature, and he upholds the universe by the word of his power. The universe, 
that is everything. Everything physical, everything spiritual, material and immaterial, atoms, buildings, nations, species, laws of nature like the speed of light and the gravitational constant, those are all held by God. Souls are held by God, upheld by him. And so Christians believe not only in a doctrine of creation about the universe's beginnings, we believe also in a doctrine of conservation that God is constantly sustaining the universe. And so it's not just about God getting things started, sort of building a watch, winding it up, and letting it go. That's not how creaturely existence works. Creation's not a one-time thing. We depend constantly on God's sustaining generosity toward us. Colossians 1, 16 speaking again about Jesus. For by him, all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things and in him, all things hold together. Thomas Aquinas wrote, the essence of all creaturely beings so depends upon God that they could not continue to exist even for a moment, but would fall away into nothingness unless they were sustained in existence by his power. This is an awesome thought. It is awesome that God right now is holding us in this room, holding everything in this room together by his power, consciously aware of it. It's a little scary, right? to be so dependent, but that's what it means to be a creature. It means to be ever dependent on God. It's also encouraging because not only do we learn from this that God is all powerful, all knowing, all wise, we also learn that God is faithful, that he does hold things together. He doesn't grow tired or bored of his creation, but he remains committed to its ongoing existence. He doesn't need the world, but he still loves the world. One philosopher writes that we have to climb out of the naive assumption that the world is simply there. That's not true. The world is not simply here. It is constantly being sustained. And so let's pause and do that for a second. Let's think to ourselves what this means. James 1.17, every good gift and every perfect gift is from above, coming down from the Father of lights with whom there is no variation or shadow due to change. And so the world is only predictable because God is faithful. The fact that we can be pretty confident that the sun will rise tomorrow is because God is true. The fact that when you wake up and you fix your coffee and you put it to your lips and it tastes the same as it did yesterday, delicious, right? That's because God is good, because he's faithful. He holds everything together. All these are gifts from a good God who we can trust. They are active gifts. He is actively giving to us. This reality, this truth makes sin all the more shocking and offensive. We who have experienced the superabundant generosity of creation, that's a theological term, superabundance, we have rejected the source of that generosity. We who owe our very existence to God thought we could sustain our existence without him, to unplug from him, as it were, and be our own power source. 
But like Facebook this week without its servers, right? What happens? Death, darkness. That is how we are without God. And it is only because of God's sustaining mercy that Adam and Eve did not cease to exist the day they ate of the fruit, right? They didn't immediately die, but separated from the God of life, they began to die. When they unplugged from him, they began to lose themselves and lose their existence. It's kind of like humans became zombies, the walking dead. And the Bible is this long story about how God creates life from death. So you have Noah is from the flood, Abraham from um, the lost, Isaac from Abraham's dead body, Joseph from the pit, Moses from the Nile, Israel from Egypt, Israel from the wilderness, Israel from exile. It's constant stories of resurrection where God is taking terrible circumstances, sin wrought circumstances of death and resurrecting people from it. And yet in the Old Testament, death still reigned, which is a lot of the struggle of Romans. He talks a lot about this, that even after Moses, when God gave the law, people continued to be dead. It wasn't enough. And that's because the law is powerless against sin. Telling people what to do doesn't help people do it. Even when they're convinced it's true. If you're a parent, you know that. If you're a person, you know that. That I can know what's true. I can be convinced of it, but it doesn't help me do it in any way. In fact, for the person under sin's rule, learning law actually activates sin. It actually ramps up sin. This is how Paul reflects on his own experience as a Jew in Romans 7. Someone who loved the law of God. He was convinced it was true and he tried so very hard to obey it. And listen to Paul's experience. He says, so the law is holy and the commandment is holy and righteous and good. Paul is not saying anything negative about God's word, about the law. But then he's curious, why did that which is good then bring death to me? By no means. It wasn't the law that brought death. It wasn't God that brought death. It was sin producing death in me through what is good in order that sin might be shown to be sin and through the commandment might become sinful beyond measure. We actually learned how deep sin is when we realize how, much, how the law activates and it makes us more sinful. And it just shows how terrible and foolish it is. For we know that the law is spiritual, but I am of the flesh sold under sin. For I do not want to understand my own actions. For I do not understand my own actions. I do not do what I want, but I do the very thing I hate. Paul's wrestling with his experience. Now, if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law that it is good. So no, now it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And so Paul is wrestling with this divided self that he's experiencing. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. Now, if I do what I do not want, it is no longer I who do it, but sin that dwells within me. And this experience is not unique to Paul. A dissonance between what you know and feel is right and what you do. All of us can identify with that. All of us know something of the truth. We might not be as dedicated as Paul was, a Pharisee, and yet we know what's right. We know good when we hear it. 
Uh, we may not agree on the particulars, like if we had a conversation, we would disagree on our ethics in certain places, but generally speaking, humans have agreed on the fundamentals of what is good, and yet they haven't been able to activate it in the world. We can all agree with scripture, whether you believe scripture is true or not, that the fruit of the spirit is good. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, gentleness, faithfulness, and self-control. You would be hard pressed to find anybody who wouldn't say that those are good things and that we should strive after those things. And most people that we know do strive after those things, but we still can't do them, not sustainably, not consistently. And why is that? Because they are fruits of the spirit of life and not fruits of the law. They aren't the fruit of good thinking or good living or good education or good pedigree. They are fruits of the spirit. We want the fruit of the spirit, but we can't have it without the spirit. Sin holds us down. And so Paul concludes in Romans 7, 24, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? Who will get this out of me? Romans 8, and really Romans 1 through 8, is written to address the problem of death. Because basically, here's how the universe works. Life comes from God and only God but humanity has rejected God. And so unwittingly, they have rejected life. Sin brings death to us and to the whole world. And because only God can create life, our only hope is the mercy of God to forgive our sin and the power of God to turn back death and give people new life. That's our only hope because there's no other source of life than God, no matter how hard we try. And we have tried, right? Humanity has tried so much. In the 1600s, it was Ponce de Leon looking in Florida for the fountain of youth, searching a jungle for a way to turn back death. In the 2000s, it's billions of dollars spent on a fantasy of transhumanism that we might be able to defeat death. It makes its way. It was in like the Atlantic Monthly or Wired Magazine about recently this big article about how we might be able to eliminate death. And all of these strategies are a rejection of God's free offer to save us from death in Jesus in pursuit of our own path. But they just won't work. That's what Romans 8 teaches us, this contrast between the flesh and the spirit. It won't work, at least not in the way that we want it to. Because, I mean, do a a little uh, hypothetical. Let's say they do work and humans start living forever without redemption from sin. How is that going to go, right? Who in here reads the news and wants to stay alive for more than 100 years? No one, right? You wanna see your grandkids, you wanna be retired, and then you're ready to be done, right? My biology might live forever, but that is not happiness alone, Right? That's actually why God removed Adam and Eve from the garden. That's one of the stated reasons, as a mercy, so they wouldn't eat the tree of life and live forever. Eternal life is not just eternal existence. Eternal life requires the removal of sin or it becomes hell. I never really noticed until this week 
the prevalence of death and resurrection in Romans. It is all over the place. I read it mostly through the courtroom lens. The first time I uh, studied Romans was probably, you know, in my late teens or early 20s. And that's how I was taught. And that's how I read it, where God is a judge and I am guilty, but Christ in his mercy becomes my substitute. And that is certainly true. It is a fine reading of Romans. You can read the entire book through that lens. Romans 3, 23, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. How did that redemption come? Because God put forward Jesus as a propitiation by his blood, as a sacrificial atonement for my sins to be received by faith. Jesus, though innocent, died in my place, and by his death, I am forgiven of my crimes against God. That is true, and it never gets old. But as I get older, talk of death has more of an effect on me than it used to. The words stand out more on the page. I've been to more funerals. I've experienced more and more the death of my own body. I've experienced more how sin itself leads to death in the lives of others and in my own life, how I have created death in my life because of my failure to follow God. I'm aware of how my soul is affected by death. And so I don't just want to be forgiven, although I do. I also want to be changed. I want God to come again. My kids asked me, what does Terry mean? Don't delay. I don't want God to delay. I want the world to be made new. I want to be free and not just from the sins of others, but from my own sin. And so with Paul, I can say, who will deliver me? Who will deliver me from this body of death? And this is why Paul is so excited about the gospel and wants to tell everyone about it because the gospel is the message of Christ being raised from the dead. Romans 1.16, it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. That's why he's not ashamed of the gospel because it is power. The gospel is powerful. Sin is powerful too, but the gospel is more powerful. That's the message of Romans 5 when he goes back and forth between sin and grace and the first Adam and the last Adam. Romans 5.20, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. Literally, the Greek says that grace superabounded. Nothing else superabounds, which is why nothing else can stand against sin and death. Our efforts, our education, our politics, our good intentions, our resolutions and commitments, our parenting, even the law of God, which is holy and perfect and good, they might put up a good fight. They might abound, but they don't superabound. And death always wins in the end. And often it more than wins. If you read the news or you go to therapy, you realize how much it wins. It trounces us. Only God's grace superabounds. Only grace has the power to overtake death. John Barclay writes, what occurs in Christ is a great reversal. Judgment from one man's sin led to condemnation 
And out of many sins, one expects that more condemnation will result. But the gift out of many sins leads to justification. The relentless momentum of sin with its inexorable consequence in condemnation and death is not just stopped in its tracks. It is reversed by a counter momentum that leads out of sin into life. This is the dynamic of recreation, the hallmark of grace, which creates life out of its opposite, death. This is a long lead up to the text for today, but I think it's an important context for us to read it with the energy that Paul is delivering it. Um, Reading Paul can be so frustrating because it feels like he's just bouncing all over the place. But if you feel what he feels which is the terror of death and the hope of resurrection, you understand that energy. And so in Romans 7, Paul is fighting death with the law and death was winning. But in Romans 8, Paul begins to fight death with the spirit and it's still a fight, but he begins to win. And so Romans 8, 5, for those who live according to the flesh, set their minds on the things of the flesh, But those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the Spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God because they're trying to find life apart from him. You, however are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. Anyone who's searching for another way does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. The Christian life requires that we think in terms of life and death, flesh and spirit, mind and body. And so as you think through what you are struggling with right now, Where are you experiencing the effects of sin and death in your life? What comes to mind? Is it a relationship, an emotion, a pattern, an addiction, a failure? How could you map it onto Romans 8 instead of Romans 7? Is this how you're thinking through your experience right now, believing that life and peace is only found through God? by the one who sets his mind, her mind on the spirit of God? Are you convinced that that's where life is? That's where goodness is. That's where hope and power is. It's found in the spirit of Christ. A mindset on the flesh, a life disconnected from God is powerless to raise itself from the dead. It will not help you. Only a life, a mind set on the spirit Are you allowing these categories to inform how you think through challenges in your life? Are you making use of the Spirit's power to defeat death through Christ's death and resurrection? Or are you hunting for some alternative answer to death, some other fountain of youth, right? A new job, a new purchase, a new friend, a new place that will fix everything? Or are you stuck in Romans 7, 
where you know what you're supposed to do. You have the word of God with you, but you just can't do it. You know what you're supposed to do. You even hate it, but you still do it anyway. Do your cries mimic Paul's, who will deliver me? Who will rescue me? And if that is your cry, keep going with Paul. Follow Paul into verse 25, right? Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ, our Lord. He will deliver me. I cannot deliver me. No one else can deliver me, but Jesus can deliver me. You do not have to save yourself. You don't have to machete your way through the jungle in search of the fountain of youth. Christ has come to you. And that is the central difference between the struggle of Romans 7 and the struggle of Romans 8 is the presence of God in the spirit. That is the difference. If you read Romans 7, where Paul talks about his struggle, God is nowhere to be found. It's just him and the Bible. That's it. But then you move into Romans 8, God moves in. The spirit of God moves in, literally. He moves into my heart. He fights with me. He defeats death with me. He makes available to me the same power that he raised Jesus from the dead. Before I was without his power, now I am with it. As a Christian, that is my situation. If you are in Christ, that is your situation. And that's what makes the gospel so powerful. It isn't just forgiveness. It isn't just redemption, acceptance, reconciliation. It is all those things, but it is all those things through God's empowering presence. That is how he achieves those things, is by sending the spirit to be with you, to indwell you as a temple. What Paul is saying in Romans 8 is foretold in Ezekiel 36. Some people see Ezekiel 36 in the language of Paul, that he's alluding to it. Ezekiel 36, the promise of the new covenant, he says, the Lord says to Ezekiel, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh, a living heart, not a dead heart. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. Isn't this exactly what Paul says in Romans 8, right? Israel thus far has been given the law and they're trying to follow God, but they have a heart of stone. They can't obey him. And so God is going to place a new spirit in them and not just any new spirit. I'm gonna place my spirit I will put my spirit within you. And the result will be that you will walk in my statutes and obey my rules, what we could not do without his spirit. Now, in many ways, I'm still torn like Romans 7. Life isn't easy. Paul is not painting an easy picture. And we'll see that as we move through Romans 8. He's gonna talk about suffering and difficulty and challenge. He's gonna be honest about the struggle Romans 8, 10, but if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. He acknowledges that your body is still dying. Romans 8 is very much about the experience of being both alive and dead at the same time. We're a walking paradox. 2 Corinthians 4, verse 16, we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. 
For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. And so he dismisses sin with the presence of the spirit. Sin just gets so small, this light momentary affliction. Death, it's still there. It hasn't been defeated, but it's small. And we have this promise of eternal life. And so the fight of faith is a fight to see the unseen. That's a whole lot um, of what chapter eight is about. Fighting to see through death, through suffering, through the groaning to the faithful presence of God. Uh, Megan Posis provided the art for our sermon series today. Is she here? I don't know if she's here. Um, and she wrote an artist description, which speaks to today's message. And so I won't put the description up so that you can look at the art while you listen to it. Uh, she said, this work is a visualization of hope in what we cannot see. The composition is mostly heavy. The dark tones represent the life we are currently in, marked by sin, suffering, and death. The fleshy pinks remind us of our humanness. A vibrant yet subtle turquoise washes down from the top of the painting, giving us a glimpse of the life-giving hope we hold in what has not yet been fully revealed. And so it's a fight. And it's important to name the fight, to not ignore it. Um, it's great that Megan painted a mostly dark composition um, because Romans 8 is written to people who are struggling. And so we name that. People can get frustrated with the gospel promises, thinking that our fight should be over, at least easier, right? We could have done art that was all happy, right? But that wouldn't have accurately reflected. Um, Megan wouldn't have been accurately reflecting Romans 8. And so as a sensitive artist and a follower of Jesus, she uh, captured the tension. But we wonder, shouldn't my struggle with sin be mostly gone? Uh, but the, when the spirit moves in, he doesn't replace me. That's an important thing to know. He indwells me, but he doesn't replace me. That's not how God redeems people by turning them into robots, right? Jesus doesn't take the wheel. Um, he, I stay in the driver's seat. Um, I'm still responsible for my actions. I'm still in control of my body. In fact, I'm in more control than I ever was because I'm not a slave to sin anymore. And so I have freedom to be able to do what's right. I can please God. I'm a child of God. I have freedom. I have agency. I have power. Only now I'm to use that freedom and agency to live in right relationship with God, others, myself, and the world. And I'm to do that with my body. That's another thing that is all throughout Romans in a way that I haven't been sensitive to is how important the body is in Romans, that my actual person. Romans 6, let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members, literally your limbs, to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourself to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your limbs to God as instruments for righteousness. And so as we set our minds on the things of the spirit and we ask ourselves, what does that mean? How does that look practically? It will lead to some big decisions. It might lead to some huge decisions in your life, but more than likely, it's going to lead to a lot of small decisions. Where you put your body in this world, how you move about with people, 
where hopefully I choose to use my body, my limbs as instruments, as weapons for righteousness instead of using my limbs as instruments for unrighteousness. And so Romans 8 is meant to encourage us by reminding us that our efforts aren't in vain. We're not still in Romans 7. You're in Romans 8. We are not what we used to be. We are not guilty. We are not dead. We are not powerless. We are not alone. Because Christ lives, you can live. You can and you will. Earlier, I read from Ezekiel 36, the promise of the new covenant, and God reiterates this promise in Ezekiel 37 by giving the prophet a vision. And Ezekiel is recounting the vision for us, and he writes, he says, the hand of the Lord was upon me, and he brought me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the middle of the valley, and it was full of bones. And he led me around among them, and behold, there were very many on the surface of the valley, and behold, they were very dry. And he said to me, the Lord said to Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord God, you know. And then he said to me, prophesy over these bones and say to them, O dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Thus says the Lord God to these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter you and you shall live. And I will lay sinews upon you and will cause flesh to come upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. And so I prophesied as I was commanded. And as I prophesied, there was a sound and behold, a rattling and the bones came together, bone to its bone. And I looked and behold, there were sinews on them and flesh had come upon them and skin had covered them, but there was no breath in them. And then he said to me, prophesy to the breath, prophesy, son of man, and say to the breath, thus says the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe on these slain that you may live. So I prophesied as he commanded me, and the breath came into them, and they lived and stood on their feet, an exceedingly great army. Church, if you believe in Christ, if Christ is in you, you are the fulfillment of this vision. Once we were all just bones. It's a grim picture. Imagine coming upon a mass grave, wondering what awful thing happened here. Ephesians 2 explains we were dead in our trespasses and sins, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air. And no amount of effort or education or rules or striving could do anything to make us alive. If anyone but God asked Ezekiel, can these bones live? He would have emphatically said no. If a doctor asked, a scientist, a teacher, a philosopher, no, they cannot live. But God asked... But even though God asked, Ezekiel doesn't immediately say yes. What does he say? He says, oh, Lord God, you know. And so we wonder, why didn't he immediately say, yes, these bones can live? And that's not because he doubted God's power. The question for Ezekiel wasn't as much, can these bones live? But can these bones live? The bones of Israel, a people you rescued only to have them reject you and run after other gods who did nothing for them. Can these bones live? Will you give your power to these bones, the bones of people created in your image out of your abundant goodness, who were meant to live a life of love and joy and worship, but instead who spurned your name and lived like you were dead? Can these bones live? Oh, Lord God, you know. 
Ezekiel refused to presume on the kindness of God. Maybe God wouldn't rescue Israel from exile. Maybe he was done. But amazingly, God was not done. His mercy is never-ending. And he commanded his prophet to deliver a message of mercy. And for thousands of years, he has commanded his prophets to speak over cities filled with dry bones. Believe the word of the Lord. Then one of those times you were there and you believed, a different time I was there and I believed, I was dead but am now alive, filled with the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of Christ, who is able to create life out of death. And now I'm one of those prophets, and so are you. I'm one of these, this great army, right? They all came alive, and they became a great army that God sends out not to kill, but to deliver messages of life. If you're here, and you've never heard the gospel, or you've never believed it, man, I want to prophesy over you. In the name of Jesus, believe the word of the Lord, Stop trusting in less powerful things to save you from death. Nothing else will save you from death. Only the gospel is the power of salvation to all who believed. All have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And the wages of that sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ. Because God in his love, while we were yet sinners, he died for us. Christ, he sent his son to die for us. And if only we put down our resistance and confess him as Lord and believe in his death and resurrection, we'll be saved. God will give us a new spirit and we will live forever free. Do you need to hear the word of the Lord? Do you need to believe Do you need to believe again and to remind yourself that life only comes from God? Nowhere else will you find life anywhere. Let's pray. Dear Father, we are so thankful for the gospel. It would have been very easy for us I'm, I'm sure I would have left, let the bones rot. I would not have breathed life back in to the bones of people who rejected me. But you are not like me. Praise Jesus. You are merciful and good, showing forgiveness and kindness to thousands of generations. While we were still sinners, you sent Christ to die for us. And then you have continued to send people out throughout the whole world to share the message of salvation, the hope of glory that death is not the end, but the resurrection is available. Father, I pray that we all here would believe, just, yeah, the quote from Louis Palau, that it just takes one encounter with Jesus to change you forever, to turn you from death to life. Father, I pray that we would all be people who are turned from death to life and then who, like Paul, run around this world telling other people of the hope that we found. 
Father, we love you. Thank you for loving us. And we pray these things.